So, welcome everyone, and um, the other night I um, began with a poem from Hafiz about um, Don't Let Hafiz Fool You, There's a Ruby Buried Inside Here, and tonight Kabir offers a ruby as well. He says, the small ruby everyone wants has fallen out on the road and some think it's in the east, while others think it's in the west. Some say it's among the primitive rocks. Others say, no, it's in the deep waters. But Kabir's instinct told him it was inside. And he carefully wrapped it up in his heart cloth. The ruby inside. So I got a note, um, I think it was this morning, <laughs> could have been yesterday, I think it was today, and um, it's a great question, and so this talk is dedicated to that note. And the note said, uh, what, are, what are the healing aspects of the 32 parts of the body? And healing, of course, is a very large word, and um, the other night I spoke about some healings from a friend of mine that had, um, at least she attributed the, the practice of the 32 parts that helped prolong her cancer diagnosis for five or six years, and then from this other person that talked about the healing that came about through her, um, her earlier life uh, of a lot of sexual abuse, and... Um, healing herself through the practices of the body. As she said something about taking back her own body, her own life. And so tonight, the, what I want to speak about is even deeper implications of healing with the 32 parts of the body meditation. And so we've been practicing this for a few days now, and... Um, I know at least um, in some of the interviews and so forth, you know, I'm hearing um, that it's, this practice is helping to open up into our life, to our physical body, to our thoughts, to our emotions, to our memories, our dreams. From the beautiful poem by Martha Elliott that our history is here inside our body. And we never quite know what's going to pop up I myself have um, visited some areas, uh, particularly earlier today in the first grouping of a time when I had a very severe bacterial infection and, and um, it came along with the pus and before you know it, it just looks like 20 years ago, I was right back in it. And um, so, wow, like what's in the body, what's stored inside our bodies, our life. So the healing begins within the body, and it's no mistake that the Buddha spoke about in developing and establishing the foundations of mindfulness that it first began with the body. And I think that maybe we're beginning to see, particularly in these type of practices, it's an inside job. It's not an outside job. It's not an out-of-the-body experience, but actually having a very visceral and experiential and direct in-the-body experience. When we speak of healing, speaking about some of the profoundest teachings within 
the dharma of, of the healing of our own hearts, of freedom, freedom from suffering. So tonight I want to talk about this path of freedom, perhaps to help us to become uh, in the service of becoming more free of our stories that have enslaved us. And we're learning as these days to sit with ourselves and as we know it's not so easy. Sometimes I think uh, the practice is akin to walking into a hall of mirrors and it's starring me, myself, and I. The joys and the sorrows, it's all there. And of course, looking at Spirit Rock, you know, it's, a, it's kind of like Bambi land. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's pastoral. There's birds, there's deer. But if they only knew what was going on inside here in our minds. Or they, oh, you're going to Spirit Rock? It's so nice there. Come and sit here for a few days. As Rumi says, it's like the guest house and we're being visited by many. And Rumi speaks about that in the guest house there can be a joy, a, um, a depression, a meanness, or some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. And Rumi says, and invites us something very radically, says, welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows. That's a pretty radical gesture. Treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delights, the dark thoughts, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door and invite them in. It's a very radical way. Most of the time in our life, in our world, we want to get away from these uncomfortable feelings. St. Augustine writes a little commentary of the times. This was written in the year 399. That's a long time ago. 399. Not even a, it's not even in the thousands. 399. And he says, People travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas, at the long courses of the rivers. People wonder at the vast compass of the ocean and the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. And you can say that we're doing something different here. We're beginning to look inside ourselves. And I want to just say deep bows to you all for the deep work that everyone is doing here. Yeah, every one of you. Every one of you. It may seem ironic, even paradoxical, to, to begin to open, to work with the pain of our lives. But I want to also just support that there's perennial wisdom from many different spiritual traditions and psychological traditions, philosophical traditions that point to this sense of turning in. When I was 16, I grew up in the Boston area and um, I was a new driver and I had to learn to drive in snow and uh, often when I would get in a skid my impulse was to turn away from the skid because it was scary. But the more that I did that the more I skidded out. I was telling my dad about it one day and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid you've got to turn into it. 
that got my attention and kind of scared me. I, I'm not trying that. So I kept on skidding out for the winter. And there came a day where I realized the futility of turning away. And just for a moment, I decided just eensy beensy little bit to turn the wheel towards the skid. And it was a kind of a revelation because I could actually feel the velocity of my car beginning to kind of move towards a place of straightening. And that was a, a real revelation for me. I think many, many years later, I, I realized there was a, such a powerful teaching there. Because it seems scary to turn into the skid, but I think through this practice, and it's developed more and more confidence within me and my own practice to turning into my pain, I find my heart. And I know for many of us, uh, we want to get away from it, and that's, uh, I can understand. It is, uh, Franz Kafka once said that, um, you know, you, you have your pain and you can deal with it or not, but if you don't deal with it, then you get two pains. And so I'm into efficiency. And um, one pain is enough. And it's not easy. It's from Francis Funnelin, a monk back in the Middle Ages, and writes in some Middle Age language, a very descriptive language. He says, as the light of awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. Anybody notice that? Yeah. As the light of awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought and we're amazed at our former blindness. As we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we'd harbor such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish and the light by which we see them waxes brighter, we can actually even become filled with horror. It gets better. Because <laughs> it ends with a beautiful message of hope. He says, bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So bear in mind for your comfort we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. This power of awareness. Christian was speaking about that, the power of these factors of awakening, of mindfulness and investigation. The power of turning into what's here, and who knows? Maybe we'll discover something. And Jennifer Wellwood, she writes very beautifully in this poem called Unconditional. Um, she writes, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition I flee from. It pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. So we're learning to turn in. 
through the vehicle of the 32 parts of the body, we're penetrating into the body, we're sensing into the body, and it's bringing up our physical sensations, of course, but thoughts, emotions, our life, our history. And of course, the Buddha, back in his time, actually known actually before as the Buddha, was Siddhartha Gautama, when he awakened to these heavenly messengers, he really wanted to devote his life to what is this life? It is said that he had what's called in Pali a, a samvega consciousness. And what that means is that when you have the awareness that death can come at any time, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? So you could say he had that big time and, and was d- determined to understand this life. And of course there's a sojourn and a story of how he traveled from master to master and learned and practiced and uh, was a great practitioner and mastered these different meditation practices all mostly under the category of concentration and absorption. And eventually, even after practicing with with these meditation masters, leaving to practice self-mortification, it was believed maybe by punishing the body, this is how he could awaken, and realizing the futility of this type of self-mortification restoring his health and sitting underneath the tree and making a great resolve that there's nowhere else to go, no other teacher to see, and I'm going to just stay here. And I'm going to just listen and practice. And it's said that while he was underneath that tree, he had a memory that arose when he was a young boy sitting underneath another tree in a beautiful day. And there's this feeling in that moment of just the connectedness of this world and life. And then there was a pasture right nearby there, or I should not say a pasture, a farmer's field, and there was some plows and some farmers, and they were beginning to use the plow to dig into the earth, to turn it over, to get ready to plant. And it was this kind of juxtaposition of the beauty of the day, and then the sensitivity was heightened, and the plow entering into the ground and he could almost like sense and hear the cries of the worms. And um, it was just this moment of the beauty and the pain of this world. And it said that he recalled that memory many years later underneath this tree, and he began to meditate. Up to that time, he was a master of absorption. But something happened underneath that tree where he used that very steadied, focused awareness, but then shifted the attention to the rise and fall, the coming and going, the changing nature of things. And this profound shift developed deep realizations within him. Four great realizations known as the Four Noble Truths. the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, that there is causes the suffering, and that there is a path that leads to the lessening and the eradication of suffering. When we speak about suffering, there's many different names we can call it. I mean, properly today we call it stress. 
there's anguish, there's dissatisfactoriness, there's all types of challenges. The word dukkha in Pali is like it's almost like a hole that like something just doesn't quite fit in the hole or it's like a round wheel and it's not quite round and it just doesn't quite fit right. We could go on and talk a lot about the different aspects of suffering, but tonight I'm much more interested in looking at the causes. And we could say that the most number one cause of all (coughs) suffering is unawareness from the Buddhist psychology. Unawareness, not knowing, ignorance, not seeing clearly. And my teacher, Tampu Lucero, said, Midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness, or ignorance, or delusion, or not seeing clearly into the things. And that there's a cycle that happens when we're unaware that perpetuates this wheel of suffering. And the Seattle used to say that if you know, you can break that cycle. But if you don't know, you will go around and around. And from this unawareness, it can give rise to misconceptions, perhaps even the belief that happiness is something that I find outside of myself. Of course, this gives rise to what we'll say that the other causes first ignorance, but it gives rise to a sense of craving and desire. In our culture, we don't like to, uh, those words sometimes are, wait a minute, we we like desire. (laughs) So I'm going to speak about this some challenge us some. And also look at this aspect of desire that is absolutely beautiful. But you could say that one of the great causes of suffering about desire, actually I read this, somebody wrote this very simple definition, desire is wanting what you can't have. And so there's a certain intrinsic, it's not that it's morally wrong or ethically wrong, but when you're desiring something, you can't have it, this suffering. Buddhist psychology speaks about these three great sufferings of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And in the Dharma it says that there's no fire hotter than craving, and no ice colder than hatred, and no fog thicker than not seeing clearly, or no fog thicker than ignorance. But I also want to put a twist on desire because I actually have um, done a little bit of research and, and that word actually comes in Latin from desidere. And it, it's, it's speaking about belonging or longing for the stars. That we long to be whole, to be connected, but perhaps we're looking not in the best place to find it. So there's a certain type of, you know, this desire to, to want to be at home, to be connected, to be part of this world. It's a beautiful thing, but where are we looking for it? That's the question that the Buddha was really inquiring into. But we all have had tasted at moments in our lives, I trust moments when we felt connected. And Paul Simon, he kind of sums it up in a beautiful song called You Think Too Much. And there's a line in it that goes, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny 
Everything was just funny. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And we might even have that this afternoon, just walking down the road here to the dining hall. It was just sunny. It was just funny. The brain was just taking a seat behind your face. So we have these moments of connectedness. And then we lose it. We're separate and we're isolated and we're disconnected. Ramana Maharshi, one of my favorite saints of India in modern times, that when he was dying, um, evidently some of his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And supposedly he said, astonishingly surprised, where am I going? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I mean, he reportedly said, where am I going, he said. I ain't going anywhere. But I think we know like when we're feeling that sense of connection, does, you know, the sense of life, death, separation doesn't matter because we are everything. And then we forget. Perhaps we're looking for this happiness and the sense of belonging outside. So I'd like to read to you a, a very powerful, beautiful translation of the causes of suffering by Ajahn Amaro, an English monk in the Thai tradition been very much connected here also with Spirit Rock in the past years. And he says, this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual delight the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing. The very powerful words from the Buddha rendering of the cause of suffering. Has anyone ever experienced any craving that has ever been compelling and intoxicating? You know that? Yeah. It's a rush. Ever seeking delight, now here, now there. So I'd like to go into this a little bit. So sensual delight, so we can say that's kind of like the eros, the libidinal instinct drive, and its operation is to feel good. Yeah? Food, sex, shopping. You know, Amazon is very clever. One click, you got it. Isn't it a little rush when you press that one little click? Boom. Boom. It feels good for a few moments, but then it's like, now what do I do? I've got to go get something else. One click. So it's this sense of, like, you know, we find it, get to happiness. I was once eating my, I know Mary Grace has heard this a dozen of times in Mary Mercy, but I was eating my favorite ice cream one day, and I was just kind of noticing this. I was just enjoying it. It's this tofuti vegan ice cream. I was in ecstasy. <laughs> I was home. Didn't have a worry in the world. I was in the land of satiation. And then I noticed there was one bite left, and then what the hell am I going to do with my life now? (laughs) I was in a crisis. I'll go get another bowl, I thought for a second. And I thought, no, no. But it's so alluring because the thing is when we have that moment, whether it's the ice cream or sex or the one click, it feels good and we like to feel good because there's no worry. 
That's like that sense of belonging. We, there's, a, there's a desire to belong. But uh, where, where are we looking for it? Where are we looking for it? And of course, outside of ourselves, it's all fleeting. It's all changing. Perhaps we can say this is the root of the addiction. It tastes so good. We want it. But then it goes and then want it again. So perhaps it's rooted in some type of a belief that something outside of me will make me whole, will make me happy, that will make me complete. Kabir says, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe. And then one day I noticed the cloth was woven, well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. This goes on for a long time. (laughs) So you can say that there's a theme song for the craving for sensual delight. Come on, you know, the Rolling Stones, I just can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try and I just can't get no satisfaction. And the craving to be someone, something. We can call this like the narcissism, self-importance, superego, but it also has a quality of inflation and deflation. It's about being someone. Remember once there was a retreatant, and he was telling a story afterwards about after doing, doing a walking meditation, and as he was doing his walking meditation, he noticed this rose up in him that he was the best walking meditator in the whole retreat. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And then as soon as he had that thought, oh man, I'm the worst. So, like, so, like, so it shifted like, like inflation, deflation. We're caught in ourself. It goes either way. Inflation, deflation. It is important, of course, in our development with our families, caregivers, you know, this thing of us in a developmental growing up to know that we are special, that we are a beautiful person as we are, not what we do. So this is very important, the sense of, of, of the solidification of our own um, compassion and, and worth. Not to negate that, very fundamentally important. But there's times due to our misconception of things, we begin to believe that, that my definition of being special is you telling me how wonderful I am. Like, I want a bunch of notes from you today telling me this was the best Dharma talk you ever heard. <laughs> so that's like coming from a place like, I need you to affirm who I am. We Many of us, we get caught up in this desire to be someone, to be seen, to be special. And this is like a core wound for so many of us of not being accepted, not being seen because of our ethnicity, our gender, our political, I mean, the thousands of different ways that that we feel separated and not part of. You know, it's embarrassing, but I'll share it. You know, the, uh, I, was, I went to Europe a few weeks ago and um, I wrote a note at the airport 
on Facebook that I'm going to Europe and maybe a vessel of the Dharma. And, and then I noticed people were checking off likes and they were writing little comments, good luck, Bob, have a great time. And I saw that it got to 199 likes. And then I saw my awareness, I wanted that 200 badly. <laughs> I did get it, and a few more, but it was very interesting to see, like, I want, like, Facebook, for crying out loud. <laughs> I wanted that 200th like. like. What's going on here? And is that going to make me finally rest that I'm okay? You know? Actually, another person wrote to me, hey, I, I mentioned this in a Dharma talk, and so I wrote something else later and said, hey, Bob, I'll be your 100th one and click the <laughs> There's a little joke going around here now. Um, All the different ways that we, like from the outside, the sense of of, uh, the verification of our own worth. Again, perhaps there's a place within me, perhaps in others, in a belief that somewhere outside of me is going to be the accepting agent that then I can know that I'm okay. There's a lot of pain in that. I think we all know. Does anybody know? Is it just me? <laughs> Again, that's a ploy. Oh no, yada yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's very insidious. The sense to belong, to be connected, to be seen. And it is important. I'm not negating it's fundamentally important, but when I'm dependent upon you to give it to me. It's from that country western song. The theme song of this particular suffering is I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking outside of me. I have somewhere inside there's a belief that somewhere out there is going to make me whole. This is a great cause of suffering. I know I've experienced years of it. And it's wonderful to be able to see it now and like, ah, to even make fun of it. And at times suffer from it. So the next one is the craving to feel nothing, which is like thanatos, the death instinct, annihilation, not wanting to feel, not wanting to exist, numbing, disassociating, losing myself in drugs and alcohol, books, movies, internet, um, to, to not be here, to not feel. I didn't very much relate to this teaching until... Um, there was a time when my older son, there was a possibility that he had cancer. Fortunately, he ended up having um, mononucleosis, and I have to say I love mono now, uh, compared to what potentially could have happened. And, but I noticed, I was, I was, while this was happening, there was, uh, we weren't clear of the diagnosis, and I was actually teaching a meditation retreat while that was happening for a short period of time, and I noticed, you know, I go to the hall and sit, I go to the hall and do the talk, go and do the interview, and then I would immediately turn around, I'd go to my room, get in my bed, put the covers over my head. All I wanted to do was sleep because it was too unbearable to be awake. And then I thought, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about here. I did not want to feel, I did not want to be here. So perhaps it's rooted in some belief that if I'm not here, I'll be okay. And I notice sometimes, again, being honest, when I look and follow my sexual yearnings, 
yes, it's interwoven with, with the sensual delight and, and the sense of importance, but the deepest thing as I begin to do, like, I just want to get back into the womb and not feel. I, when I follow this, I want to just get back in that womb and not feel anything. So it's very interesting. Like I said, follow these longings. Where do they take you? You could say the theme song for the craving to feel nothing is from Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island. A rock feels no pain and an island never cries. So that sense of turning away. So it's actually very helpful to notice when I do want to get lost in it. And of course, once I become aware that I want to get lost in it, I can join and be present. But who is this I guy? That's what I'd like to speak about. This I that wants to be satisfied. There's a central teaching in the Dharma, and it was uh, mentioned already a little bit about these marks of existence of suffering and impermanence and no self. And I think for many of us, the teachings of no self are perplexing. It rubs up against our name, our status, our ethnicity, our political affiliation, and it's perhaps in many ways just downright un-American. Descartes declared, I think, therefore I am the hallmark of our Western culture. But who is this I that gets caught up in all this suffering? Is the I found in the head here, the body here, the nails, the teeth, the skin? Neuropsychologists Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius wrote a book called The Buddha's Brain, and, and they speak about that... Um, I won't read you the whole quote, but from, he says, from a neurobiological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. An apparent, coherent, and solid eye is actually built upon many subsystems and many sub-subsystems, so I won't go into it much more. But the, even the neuroscientists, the neuropsychologists, cannot find a part of the brain that is an eye. And so the sense of these teachings of known self, non-self, are very perplexing. Maybe perhaps it's even in that word, non-self. Sometimes I like to prefer the word, the ownerless nature of things. As Mary Grace said the other night, no one consulted her about her eye. No one consulted the eye. And like, you know, I have an enlarged prostate. Nobody, you know, I, I didn't tell my prostate to get larger. And of course my hair fell out. Of course, so Mary Grace says I could grow a nice thing in the back here. But the body's just kind of doing its thing, uninvited. And in the Yanata Lakana Sutta, the teachings of the three marks of existence, the Buddha, he also argues that if there was a self, you could say self, don't get sick, don't age, and don't die. So there's a certain lack of control and ownerless nature of things. A friend of mine, a psychiatrist, he actually took the 32 parts of the body and uh, he wrote me an email later and I got a little scared. He said, Bob, this practice is very disabusive. And I didn't know what disabusive meant. And I thought, oh my God, am I abusing my friend, the psychiatrist? So I had to go look it up. 
And disabusive has a different definition. It's like when somehow like your orientation of the world is turned upside down. What you think to be so is actually not so. And it's, it's kind of in a place of uh, disabusiveness. <laughs> Alice had the same experience in the Wonderland. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah that's the pipe, out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging, encouraging opening for conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar caterpillar sternly, explain yourself. And Alice said, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see. She had a little bit of a disabusive moment. I'm not myself, I see. So again, what does this teaching of non-self really mean that we can relate and understand to? Let's understand about. And so one way that I want to just to, to speak about it is from, you know, perhaps you could say a, a psychological way. And it is said in the text that the Buddha experienced the unconditioned. And so that implies that if there's an unconditioned, that there is a conditioned. And to me, the conditioned means our story, our narrative of how I see things. And it's my sense that the Buddha saw through the stories, the illusions, the limited definitions that are motivated and revolved around greed, hatred, and ignorance and experienced profound freedom, breaking free of these stories. That makes the most sense to me. Breaking free of these stories. And these stories that we live with are incredibly painful at times. And I have a friend, growing up he was very tall and very clumsy. And his father gave him a nickname. You've all heard of the story King uh, Midas, Everything You Touch Turns to Gold. Most of you have heard that children's story. Well, he was given the name King Minus, Everything You Touch Breaks. That's a pretty, pretty hard thing to hear. Fortunately, there's a good ending to the story in that my friend has done a lot of internal work and um, been very successful, but mostly successful in knowing that he is all right. He's good. But these stories that we grow up with, we can begin to believe. And that feeds a sense of deficiency. When I was young... I had an Uncle Sidney. He's now gone. And on Sundays, we would go over to uh, my grandma's house. And my grandma would have like little cups of peanuts and different things there. And I loved peanuts. And so I'd go there and I'd get a few peanuts. And I was just so happy. And, and my Uncle Sidney had a little joke for me. He thought it was a joke. He would say, as I started walking towards the peanuts till I became very self-conscious and I'd hardly do it anymore, was he'd call me, here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. 
What is this claw thing? <laughs> there was a woman in an MBSR class. She was in her 60s, and we were going around the circle one day just talking about things we were discovering about ourselves, and she kind of blurts out, it kind of stunned us all. She says, you know, there's not been one single day in my entire adult life that I haven't called myself an asshole. And then another person said, well, I don't call myself that, but I call myself stupid. Another person said, no, I call myself a dummy. And we started going like, it's like, oh my gosh, what we're telling you. Well, if we ever said this to any of our friends, we wouldn't have any. <laughs> but we do this to ourselves a lot. So there's these stories that we have picked up along the way. My parents also said to me, Bobby, it's a good thing you have your brother. He'll be into business, he'll make some money, because I'm not sure about you. <laughs> Well, they're probably pretty right because, you know, I'm <laughs> practicing, living in a monastery. What's he doing with his life already? And, um, it's, but these stories that, 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 that we get told when we're young and we're developing and we're individuating into ourselves that we take with us. Like, I was told, I'm not a good writer. Or I can't paint. I can't sing. I'm not pretty. I'm not a good athlete. I'm not smart. I'm not this, I'm not that. And we begin to inhabit this world of deficiency, inadequacy. John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla, they wrote a very beautiful book about raising children. It's called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting. And one of the things that they really want to convey is not only giving your child acceptance and empathy, but to honor their sovereign nature. And what that means is to honor their sense of their sovereignty, their sense of their own worth. And you'll notice most infants are so full of themselves, you know? They don't have a lot of conscious, self-consciousness. You know, if they have to poop, they'll just poop right in front of you. They could care less. And if it's funny, they'll laugh. And if they're scared, they're really angry, they'll, 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 they'll just be themselves. And then we raise them. <laughs> and we get them educated. And we, and we have to keep them safe, not run on the street and get hit by a car, put your hand away from a stove. But there's times where we get smashed we're made to feel small. We're feeling shame. Last night I had a shame story come on. I haven't told you all this one yet, but I was in my dorm, my room here, and I was fixing my, my radio, my, my cell phone for my alarm and, and getting things set up, and all of a sudden, I don't know how, the Grateful Dead box of rain came on totally loud. So if any of you heard this, I totally apologize. And I was trying to get the bugger, shut it off, and it wouldn't shut off. And, I'm, and I finally I put it underneath the bed, and, I, and, and I'm holding it, like, when will it get off? And then I, oh my God, it took the longest time to get off. It took the longest time, and I felt so much shame. Everyone in the whole dorm you know, I have this whole story. I, I finally, I go outside, I go to the teacher's room, and I'm feeling my body. It's shaking, it's vibrating, I'm hot. And, and it was like, and I had this story. Of, I, I felt such shame. Yeah. Such shame. These stories are powerful. So the one thing that I want to say is that we can't bypass these stories about ourselves. This practice, as I mentioned earlier, it's incredibly personal, and in some ways it's incredibly per impersonal. 
but we can't bypass this personal part of us. In the early years of the meditation scene, it was kind of like doing drugs, like just get high, let's just, let's just go somewhere else, let's find God and kind of bypass all the personal stuff. But we've come to understand that the personal doorway is the gateway into awareness, into freedom. We can't bypass these stories, but we can begin to work with them. And I believe just as the Buddha began to work through these stories and narratives that enslaved the heart, they were filled with greed, hatred, and ignorance that manifest in our senses, our states of mind, and experienced deep peace. This is the work before us. It's through awareness. We talk about mindfulness in the... In the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha says that this is the most, mindfulness is the most direct way to awaken. Because if we see what's there, we get understanding. So Margaret Wheatley, an organizational psychologist, she reads something very beautiful here. She says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So it's this breaking free of self-reference and beginning to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we can begin to break the seal. So we all have these stories and we're beginning to investigate them. And often these stories have such a power of deficiency and adequacy in our practices to see these, to acknowledge these, to understand these, and begin to see that these perhaps are limited definitions of who we are, and that there's great possibilities ahead. So Carl Jung, he writes, I can feed the hungry, and I can forgive an insult, and I can love my enemy, and that these are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me. And that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. That I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. And the Lebanese poet Cahil Gabriel says, And God said, Love your enemy. And I obeyed and loved myself. Yeah. So there's been a lot offered tonight. But I feel that it goes together very well. 
that in within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom within this fathom-long body. And the 32 parts is a practice of entering into this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions. And for us to begin to understand these causes of suffering, to investigate them ourselves, whether this seems to be accurate or not, so there's an invitation to come and see for yourself. And come and see in the sense of who is this self and the stories and the narrative that I call me, myself, and I. Who is this I? And is there parts within that are enslaving, that are beliefs of deficiency, the beliefs that somehow I get happiness from outside rather than inside. These are very powerful teachings that have uh, informed my life tremendously. So I I thank you for um, listening. And and may, may these practices support to becoming that much more human and humane and real. So I'll just end with uh, another reading from The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. And so what is real, asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time and not just plays with you, but really, really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. The skin horse said it doesn't happen all at once and that to become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and you look very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. So let's just sit in our realness for a few moments. And what if we just didn't have to be anyone else? And actually, when you think about it, everyone else is taken anyways. (laughs) What if you could just be yourself? Everyone else is taken. If you got inside them, you wouldn't want it anyways. What would it be like just to be yourself without any wants or even not 
pushing anything away, that you could just, for a moment, in oasis, allow yourself just to be held, to be here, awake. Becoming free of the wanting and the not wanting. Contented and with ease. Being with yourself as you are. Money cannot buy contentment. It is the greatest of wealth. The relinquishing of the wanting and the not wanting and entering into your own heart with great compassion, just as you are. Imperfectly perfect as we all are. May all beings be at peace. So thank you so much for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.